Allied warplane sighted heading for New York City. Our detection system shows nothing. Mayday! Mayday! New York is under attack! Intercept and destroy! A force field is shielding the warplane. It's, it's getting through. It is time. We will now strike at the heart of American defense and destroy the Pentagon with one swift and deadly blow. <laughs> Welcome back to Midnight Grappler Animals, home of Flub Nation. I'm your host, Lan, and with me, I've got two gentlemen that could be considered U.S. war machines in and of themselves. I've got first my co-host, Salt. Salt, how are you doing? I'm locked and loaded. And with us today, we have a guest for our third part of our Infinite Justice series. We have... Chuck Austin. Chuck, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, Chuck? How may people know you? Where might people see your work? Uh, wow. That's a way bigger, <laughs> deeper answer than you may realize. I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> I've been around a while, so, you know, um, I've done a lot. Um, I, you know, started off in video games, working on games like John Madden Football, uh, Spectrum Holobytes Falcon series, um, NHL hockey, uh, Road Rash, Shockwave for Electronic Arts, just tons of stuff. So then I went to LA and started a completely different career working in animation. Started working on King of the Hill as the first as the production coordinator, working with the writers and with the showrunners. And then eventually when they found out I could draw, they sent me over to work on the animation side. So I started working as a storyboard artist at Film Roman, on King, also on King of the Hill. And then just continued to, my career just kind of transformed from there. And I continued to rise through the ranks of, of the animation industry going from storyboard artist to assistant director to director to producer and for the last 10 years i've been a producer in various different capacities on various different shows and various different companies awesome. primarily dreamworks and i think in the middle there you did a little bit of comic writing too if i'm not mistaken oh yeah yes i did <laughs> um, there was a hiatus period actually i was storyboarding on king of the hill and there were some assistant director positions opening but they weren't going to be available for several months. They were going, the show was going on hiatus and shutting down for, uh, they were saying up to six months. So I needed more work. And that was around the time that Joe Casada and uh, Bill Jemis took over Marvel. And so I sent in some samples that I had worked up of us war machine actually. And Joe hired me to do Electra and us war machine. And so I worked in comics for about three years and then transitioned back to animation. Um, now, when you transitioned back to animation, Chuck, did you end up doing more work on King of the Hill or were you done? Were you out at that point? I went back in, at some point in the future, but uh, I was done at that point for a while. I went back and worked on a show called uh, Family, or not Family Guy, but uh, a, a split off of Family Guy called The Cleveland Show. Ah, uh, yeah. 
then I worked on a, uh, a, a kid's show at Nickelodeon called Robot and Monster, where I both storyboarded and then wound up directing for a season, actually a season that nobody will ever see. It was season two, and it all went into a box. And then from there, I went to Randy Cunningham and then to uh, Steven Universe. Um, so uh, and then I think somewhere in there, I, I spent another season on King of the Hill around 10th or 11th season. But then I uh, then I left again. I, I want to ask a little more about King of the Hill because you in your your body of work, you're known a lot for your humor. Did you contribute any jokes or gags to your King of the Hill stuff? Uh, I didn't the first season, really. There was like one time that I did that I wasn't supposed to. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long story. But I was just the, I was the, uh, I was the, as the production coordinator, it was my job to just make sure everybody got where they were supposed to go and got what they were supposed to get. And so that meant taking notes, it meant uh, being in charge of the, the production assistants, sending out scripts to the actors, working with the actors for voice and talent and whatnot. So um, I got a joke into an episode uh, just because, like I said, it's a, it's a kind of a long story, but they were, they were hung up and couldn't think of a joke. And, and I snuck one in behind the scenes and only one of the writers actually knew that it was my joke. So, um, so that was it to, for the first season. And then later on, when you're a storyboard artist, yeah, you do, you do add in small things, but for the most part, they really want you to follow the script pretty tightly. So I didn't do much of that. Uh, either uh, at the storyboard phase, but you do, you are responsible for making the jokes land. When they get, send you a script, they want to make sure that the storytelling works and so that the jokes hit the way that they're supposed to. And uh, there were plenty of times when they would send back storyboards or episodes that they didn't feel that the uh, the artist had hit the joke the way that they were supposed to. And Greg was very specific about that. And being an artist himself, he was really good about giving notes so that we could understand what it was that would make that joke work the way it was supposed to. But because I'd worked with Greg and the writers, I, I understood that probably better than most uh, when I was working as a storyboard artist on King of the Hill. So uh, it was just generally about trying to make their, their material work the way that it was supposed to. So pretty rarely did you ever actually get to put something in that, that stuck. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, Salt, but that's. that's no, that absolutely lot. does. I, I don't work in TV and I, I, I do know that there's a lot of moving parts. So that's a really fascinating insight. Thank you. Yeah. And well, it depends on the show, too. So there are shows like like Steven Universe would encourage people. They would encourage the board artists to create jokes and gags because Rebecca had come from that in Adventure Time, where sometimes she would say, well, I would get the script and I didn't like it and I would throw it out and start over again that's called a board driven show. And that's when the board artists have a, a lot more say in it. Um, but King of the Hill was a fully scripted show. So they didn't like, and they didn't like the artists going off on their own. There's a, a lot of reasons for that. When you're doing a, a fully scripted show, generally the showrunner, like Greg Daniels was, he was very story oriented and artists and animators will often throw in gags that derail the story because they'll kind of go off on their own, their own little tangent. I mean, uh, um, I'm trying to think of an example of that. Um, that well, like what was the of. joke that you did? Oh, it was just a, a line of dialogue. There was a, an episode where Bobby learned, where they find out that Bobby Hill actually has the ability to shoot really well. He's, he's great with a rifle. 
And his father, for the first time, I think, since Bobby was born, is actually quite proud. And so he's he's saying things like trying to encourage him to talk about it and to, to try to bond with him. And he's saying things like because um, uh, he was he was shooting things like, uh, I don't know, cardboard birds and things like that. And so um, Hank is like asking him, you know, how, how did it go? How did it feel? And and at one point, Peggy had a had a line that she also said, because Bobby's talking about shooting these kind of silly things. And she says, uh, she said something that it was a gr- joke that Greg didn't like. And um, they kept, he kept asking for alternatives. So the, the writers went away, they would write an alternative, they would bring it back. He didn't like it, he would send them back. So they were spending literally, I think at one point, like a, over an hour on this one Peggy joke. And I said, well, I just put on a post-it note and I sent it into I think it was the uh, the writer of the episode, David Zuckerman. I said, "What if Peggy says, did you shoot any bunnies or duckies?" And um, and David, I could see through the glass because he was in another room. But David read it and laughed and handed it to Greg, and Greg kind of nodded, and they went with it. So uh, that was the joke that I that I got in. Whatever the joke, I don't remember the specifics of it. That was twenty five years ago. So, um, but whatever joke Peggy says in that particular moment, that was a a, a line that technically um, I wrote secretly. So, wow! Uh, but that was really only I was just trying to help a friend of mine. David Zuckerman was a good was a friend of mine. I really liked him a lot. We got along great, and I could see that he was he was having a hard time trying to give Greg what he wanted. And I thought maybe I could help. So that's awesome. But you weren't supposed to, you weren't supposed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> As a, well, it, you're really supposed to leave that stuff to the creative people. There's all kinds of rules. Why not? And, um, but, um, but you know, sometimes you just, you're running out of time. You're, you're paying by the hour for the recording studio and everybody's <laughs> panicking. And, and so I thought, okay, this seems funny to me. Maybe David will like it. So that's how it happened. That's cool, man. Thanks for sharing. Yeah, sure. So the reason why we're here today, uh, we're talking about a book that, well, it's been 22 years since it came out, but we figured it would be good to cover given the theme and the tone of uh, our our series. Uh, The book I'm talking about is U.S. War Machine. Uh, It was a 12-issue miniseries that launched on September 12th, 2001. Yeah, wow. It's... (laughs) That, that's partially the reason why we, we want to talk about it. Wow. Yeah, that's okay. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite a transitional time, I have to say. Yeah. I mean, it was the first time you worked for Marvel as both a writer and an artist because you had already been working as an artist on Elektra for about two months at that time, right? Elektra had started two months before. Uh... Yeah, I think, I think, I think it was about two months yeah, I, I didn't like, like you said, it's 22 years ago, so memory fails, but yeah. So it was one of the first titles in Marvel's Max line, which was supposed to be their mature uh, adults only, I guess, line. Um, but it was the second book yep. uh, to come out. The first one was Alias Number One from Bendis and Gatos, which was actually the week prior. And U.S. War Machine Number One launched alongside Fury Number One from uh, Ennis and Robertson. Um, It was a weekly black and white release, and it ended its first run on November 28th of that year. And after that, there was a sequel miniseries, U.S. War Machine 2.0, which would run two years later, 
that was from June, mid-June to early July. That was three issues, um, and this time you were doing just the writing, and on art you had Christian Moore. Is there anything else that the reader should know about in that intro? That was the long story short, I guess, of, of its existence. Um, no, I mean, other than I actually sold myself to Casada based on I, I literally sent the first, I think, 10 or 15 pages of the first War Machine issue to him. Like, what was the process of, you know, like from inception to that first issue launching? What was that process like? Uh, the inception was interesting. It was, I was, I had been, I had been playing around a lot with various CG programs largely because I hated drawing vehicles. So I was always looking for a, an easier way to draw backgrounds and vehicles, things that I didn't enjoy drawing. Uh, but, you know, everybody wanted that kind of detail, particularly in comics or in, even in animation sometimes now, that the, uh, the demands in animation were growing and still continue to grow uh, the same way that they still continue to grow in comics. There's a lot of parallels in between comics and animation. But... Uh, so I was playing around with CG, and and I, this is going to sound sort of weirdly woo-woo and metaphysical, but I had this dream about these armored soldiers at one point, and I sort of woke up the next day and I thought I should make a I should make a war machine model and just start playing around with that. So I made a model of uh, of the U.S. war machine, to, and I think the first image that I created was the cover to number one, that one where he's standing mm, in front yeah. of the American flag. And I kind of liked the way that it was going. And I thought, you know, it, this actually would be a pretty cool way to do an Iron Man series or a, or a War Machine series. And so I just I started thinking about what I would write or what I would create just for myself, for fun, and started putting pages together. And then we got the notice at King of the Hill that we were going on hiatus uh, for a much longer period than expected. Sometimes they would shut the series down because... Fox technically hadn't approved the next season. So we kind of had to wait around until they had approved it before we could start on the next season. That could that could mean anywhere from a month to a year of unemployment. So you had to start mm -hmm. looking around for new work. So I had these samples. I found out that that Casada and Jemis had just taken over Marvel and were looking to do sort of different and unusual ideas to try to open up the market a little further. So I had these pages. Uh, a friend of mine said, you should send them in. Uh, my office mate, actually, Mark Moralia, who, who uh, um, he and I were both longtime comics fans, and he kind of liked what I was doing with the War Machine stuff. And he said, you should send it in to Marvel and see what they say. So so I did. I packaged it up. I sent it to Marvel. And I think Casada called me a couple of days later. And he was really interested in the concept because I was, I was approaching it like manga. I was approaching it like a black and white series that you would literally put out 15 to 20 pages a week and using CG, you could do that because when the models are built, it's much easier to, and you, once you've got the models and the sets and everything set up, it's much easier to render that stuff out quickly and then kind of clean it up. Uh, at least it, it, at that stage, it was, it was easier at, at this stage. Now, 20 some years later, it's even much easier than it was then. So, uh, but at the time, I thought, yeah, this is actually a way that I could make a living doing comics because I had been in comics 
maybe 10 years before that, very, very briefly, I'd worked with Mark Wade on a Plastic Man series that never came out. I worked on uh, just some spot illustrations and a, and a, a short backup feature um, that was, what was it, the Fire and Ice characters? It was the... Mm-hmm. the I think it was you the, also had a, a brief run with um, Miracle Man. Miracle Man, mm-hmm. yep. And, uh, and Phantom Lady and Action Comics Weekly, just a bunch of sort of unusual stuff. Miracle Man was fun. I enjoyed that. Alan was great to work with. But... Um, but I thought I was out of the business entirely, and now I was. If I was going to get back into it, I would have to find a way to make it, you know, some way that was cost effective. And this was a way. And so Joe and I talked about that, and he said, "But look, I really need somebody to to work on this Electra series that uh, Bendis is going to be doing. And would you be interested?" And um, some people gave me some of Bendis's comics, and I read them and thought, "Oh my God, this guy's amazing!" So I thought, "Yeah, absolutely, I would love to work with this guy." So. So we were kind of doing them both simultaneously. I was, we were trying to figure out how to actually do uh, War Machine. They were doing most of the work. They, that was going through, I believe it was, uh, I mean, Brian Smith was my direct editor on it. I think it was going, so it was kind of maybe going through Ralph Macchio's mm-hmm. office initially. And so they started looking into how they could actually produce it. Um, could they do a black and white comic? Could they do a weekly comic? Could they make all of that stuff happen? And in the meantime, I was continuing to work away on scripts and for that, while at the same time doing the artwork for Electra, using the same techniques. Joe liked the the sort of the CG technique. It also had a lot of buzz going because of some other CG projects that people had tried that hadn't worked quite so well. Right, and that was a color project, right? Electra was a color project. Yeah, mm. yeah. Um, I had nothing to do really with the color. The colorist was um, working on his own beautiful stuff. He did amazing work. I don't remember his name. So had you had any prior uh, correspondence with the people at Marvel prior to you sending in those original pages? No, none. Never, never had any contact with any of them at all. Wow. And then it just like exploded. Um, People started showing the war machine stuff around and they liked the writing. And then that got into the X offices and uh, the X offices started thinking well this guy might be pretty cool for the x-men and then it just kept it just kept growing and taking off Uh, i never expected it to last long the comics industry was so turbulent i told my wife at the time i said look this is great we should write it while we can but i if i get three years out of this i'll be surprised Hmm. if i get five years all because that one dream oh because that one weird (laughs) dream yeah and it was really just like this it was it wasn't even war machine it was some other something similar to that it was like this armored warrior guy with guns and weapons and you know full body armor i don't know what the hell that was all about but this is where yeah that's that was all that one dream so yeah like i said i don't want to get too woo woo about it but <laughs> no please yeah. you have full authorization to come <laughs> yeah. this is a a 100 woo woo positive podcast <laughs> all right cool works for me can lan are you all right if we go a bit into the content of us yeah Machine absolutely now? so you know I was struck by it, you know, go, going into U.S. War Machine, the, the title's a, a bit uh, loaded, if you will. Yeah. And uh, it comes out around 9-11. Of course, you had done that before 9-11. But I, I think I had a bias of sorts. I was expecting these um, more, uh, like, international politics, mm. which are there, but uh, it, it was striking that a lot of the politics of U.S. war machine were about more domestic issues 
if, if I'm going to oversimplify, of course. Sure. But um, I, I'd read some interviews with you where you were talking about the the black experience and, you know, having black friends and that you, your kids had had or you, your kids had a lot of friends who weren't white. And so you, you're contending a lot with this, this, this world that we could portray in pop culture that was less homogenous than it had been. I'm wondering, were there any specific events in your life or any news stories that that really motivated you wanting to tell that story? I don't think there were any specific news stories at that point. Um, for me, it was more about, I was seeing that the world was becoming, in a, in a lot of ways, a smaller place. You know, this was at the very mm -hmm. early days of the internet and... And so, you know, I mean, uh, like fan websites only really started taking off. I think this is my second year back in comics, like 2002, as I remember, is when everybody started talking about online forums and things like right. that. So that's when you see things like CBR, Newsarama, like the, all the big blogs start emerging around then, too. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was then. Um, and then there were some there were some fan sites, various fan sites, and they were always looking to try to get the writers or the artists to participate so that they could increase their, their traffic uh, through the sites. So people were, started sending out emails and requests to creators to ask them to participate. So, um, so before that, no, there really, it, it was for me, storytelling has always been about the personal. It's always been about the, about individual relationships and how, uh, how connected um, the main characters are on some deeper personal level. It's not really so much about global politics or things like that. That comes into play as a background to the story, but um, my philosophy for storytelling has always been more around, it's all about the individual personalities and the individual personal relationships. So um, in a lot of ways, I guess it's it, it was Joseph Campbell before I had fully discovered Joseph Campbell. Um, hmm. I did get into him uh, shortly after I got involved with uh, creating U.S. War Machine. A friend of mine was a huge Joseph Campbell addict, Alan Jacobson. He's, he did some work, very brief work for Marvel for a while, and he's a longtime friend of mine from the animation business. And he's a huge Joseph Campbell nut, and he got me turned on to Joseph Campbell. So I read Hero with a Thousand Faces and um, and I started following that template. In fact, it was actually kind of funny because that was becoming the kind of the buzzword just as I was getting into it or after shortly after I had gotten into it. And I was having uh, a lunch with Bill Jemis at one point and he was complaining about how everybody was always talking about Joseph Campbell and, you know, it's all crap. Why can't they just do something like US War Machine, which is super cool. And I just, I said, but Bill, it actually is Joseph Campbell. <laughs> And he just did like the table just kind of went silent. It was a very awkward moment. But so, uh, so, so for me, it, uh, again, I don't know if I'm veering away from the, the question that you wanted answered, but it's always been much more about the personal. So for me, it was much more about, uh, I had an African-American roommate, although she hated being called African-American. She said, I've, ne I've never, I was never uh, born in Africa. <laughs> she was also a Republican. So, and she said, and mostly I'm a Republican because I feel like the Democrats always feel like they deserve, they, I'm, I owe them my vote. So she had, she had political point of view. I had none. Um, so we talked about that a lot. Uh, in fact, she gave me a lot of great 
detail and information, but it was all very personal, the, the U.S. war machine stuff. At least it, it was initially. And there was also my, yeah, my stepdaughters at the time had friends who were uh, Iranian, friends who were Armenian. Uh, I heard about the Armenian genocide. I heard about all kinds of things that I um, had never really been exposed to before. So um, the world was just becoming a much smaller, tighter place. And I felt like I, I believed that at that time that that was going to start informing the direction of creativity, that people were going to have to start recognizing that the world is a, is a bigger, broader, more colorful place than we expected. And, and, you know, this is 20 years before people started complaining about wokeism, but, right. but it's, <laughs> well, we're complaining about that all yeah, the time on here. Yeah, you know? oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the woke mob strikes again. Yeah. I mean, I found the racial politics in this book to be really, really fascinating. You know, like it's very complicated. It's not clean to say the very least, but no. it's interesting to see how it mirrors events at the time, even though it wasn't a direct reaction to 9-11. It, it feels like a proper microcosm of a lot of the racial tensions around that time in the aftermath of uh, 9-11. Now, when, so given that this was a weekly series, yeah, how did that, how did the news and I guess the, the overall political state of, of the way that things were going in America start working its way into your writing or did it at all? Was there any influence there? It, it really couldn't because we had created so much i've written most of the scripts before 9 11 mm -hmm. and the the artwork was being created um as the first issues were hitting the stand the last issues were being finished and created so there was there really wasn't it was it was one of those i don't know hinge moments in in your career where you you realize you you did strike a nerve or or find uh some kind of hot button topic for just the perfect moment in time or the most or the most imperfect moment in time however you want to look at it um, mm -hmm. in fact it was when the book first came out it like you said it was september 12th so uh, i went into i had ordered some extra copies from the local comic shop and i went in to, to pick them up and the store was deserted nobody was in it and nobody had been in it since the day before and he wasn't expecting to see anybody all week and uh and i said uh he said, man, you picked a really terrible time to put a book out. And I said, yeah, tell me about it. And um, and he said, but, you know, he said the people that are reading it, he said it's really cathartic for them because it's like they're they're reading about killing terrorists while um, after this this big horrific event. And I wasn't sure how I really felt about that. I didn't really know. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think it was a you salt that said that it wasn't really or it was a you line that said it wasn't really um, clean in a lot of ways and and actually in some ways i feel like that's that's been a, a strange part of my creative process is that i don't ever see things as clean or as simple or as black and white or people are this way or people are that way um it's one of the reasons why i had uh Rody and parnell be two distinctly different personality types mm -hmm. uh, because i don't see everybody as homogenous and the same and that was one of the things that i got specifically from my roommate that she she said, we are, you know, I mean, you know, like I said, she was, she, she was not happy being considered to be sort of a gimme vote for the, for the Democrats. So 
Um, and she was, she's one of the few people that I've met that had that attitude, but I absolutely respected it. Um, but it was, it was different. It was unique, just like everybody in the world is different and unique. So, so my, my approach has always been for characters to not be really clean, but it yeah. was, it, it, it doesn't always work in an industry where the fans prefer clean. They right. prefer, you know, good versus evil. They prefer that to have their sides, um, really well defined. So, um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I don't think that I had a, a very long career in comics. I think that a lot of what I was doing was not really meant for the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, I mean, I'm sure we'll get into that as we go along too. Yeah. Um, Salt, is there anything you want to, you want to mention here? Uh, yeah, I just a quick comment. I mean, I'm really glad you brought up the, the clean thing land because, uh, yeah, I don't have a lot of experience with Jim Rhodes in the books, only the, the movies. And I, I found these characters to be far less superheroes and more people who had to deal with heightened situations. And I, it's it's hard for me to... I'm not throwing anybody under the bus here, but uh, it's hard for me to imagine that in a, in a modern Marvel book is all. <laughs> Anyways, Lan, you go ahead. Yeah, uh, well, the one dynamic i really found interesting was the dynamic between the two main leads i guess in this book would be obviously roadie but uh, also parnell you know yeah. in some ways parnell is a foil to Rhodes, but also he is uh, like a mirror of sorts right um especially in regards to uh Rhodes's own identity you know he pushes Rhodes on a lot of elements about self-hatred his own elements of um his own perceptions of race and it was it's crazy to think about it because you know like this is a book from 2001 and for me again i i I wasn't i was i definitely wasn't old enough to be thinking about these things in 2001 but looking back on it now it, it really really opened my mind to the to the idea that we were having these conversations back then you know like these these feel like very contemporaneous conversations you know the idea of racial identity loving the skin you're in etc etc you know like to think that that goes that far back um you know like even the semantics of the african-american versus black it comes up quite a bit uh throughout the book and you mentioned that that was something that was directly inspired from your roommate, correct? Yeah, my my roommate, um, she was a, a young woman who had come to Los Angeles to be a writer and was uh, working on various different shows and various different projects. She was actually Joss Whedon's assistant when he was making Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, wow. And um, so she... Um, and, you know, she she would invite friends over and she had um, friends from back east. She had come from back east and they would come to visit her and stay with us for a while. And so a lot of the War Machine stuff, I think, evolved out of the conversations that we would have in the living room. You know, I would talk with her and her friends about things and hear the multiple viewpoints about the same issue. And so I was hearing those conversations and talking about them. And then when I got the job later on doing doing writing war machine i went to her and i said would you mind reading the scripts i said i'll actually you know pay you a part of what i get to to give me your thoughts and advice and 
and she read the first couple and she handed them back to me and she said, you really have been paying attention. <laughs> went, yeah, uh, I've tried. And she said, yeah, I don't have any notes to give you on these first few. She had a couple of notes later on in the series, uh, mostly re uh, referencing things that Parnell had said. Uh, and was how it specifically like the dialogue or like more the content? No, it was, the, it was specifically the dialogue. The content she loved, she, or at least she said she loved it. Um, mm. She may not have wanted to discourage me. I don't know. But, um, but she, she said she really enjoyed it. No, it was about, there was a, a couple of lines where Parnell would refer to himself uh, in ways, she said, this is what white people would say to him. This is not what he would say to himself. And so I was really, I was grateful really grateful for her input and i would make those adjustments to the script as we were going along so so if you're picking up on a lot of that stuff it's because of, you know it was, it was um it was a part of my life it's part of what i was hearing in my day-to-day -day living room <laughs> so right. um and and it was it was great i mean i was very happy with the way it turned out i remember being in san diego and a, a young black man came up to me and he looks at me and he goes, you're Chuck Austin. And I said, yeah. And he goes, damn it. I went, <laughs> what? And he goes, I, I was sure you were going to be black. And he, he asked me to sign his comic and then he just quickly went away. <laughs> and I thought, never meet your yeah, heroes. Meet your heroes. Yeah. And I thought, wow, I, I, that's, I, I'm again, really grateful, but what an unusual reaction. So, um, but I, I, I've gotten, often gotten those kind of reactions from people. I got one, uh, some young women that came up to me that loved the first issue of the, the Gambit story that I had done in, uh, in X-Men. In uh, X-Men, mm. uh, what was the, the split off? Ultimate X-Men. Ultimate X-Men, thank you. Um, and I said, oh, well, what did you think of the second issue? And they all just stood there silently and kind of looked at each other. And then they took their books and walked away. <laughs> so, <laughs> so as much as people talk about these sort of weird confrontations that they always hands and I've had my share, um, there are also times where the fans are just not willing to tell you what they're really thinking about things, too. So um, mm. so I don't, I don't know. I, the, the, the response to U.S. War Machine was was, I think, terrific. I was was always impressed by the people that would come up to me and want to talk to me about it. We were having a lot of the same discussions that the three of us are having right now, but, um, but it was never, it was obviously not something that I, uh, planned or expected to be so, um, so tied into nine 11 at all. Mm. I think I made one, one sentence adjustment into the dialogue in one of the later issues based on what had happened yeah in issue seven you actually get an explicit mention of the world trade center which i found was was pretty interesting <laughs> which is yeah. why i brought it up this was i think a couple weeks before the first real well in terms of marvel's comics at the time you know like the first real reaction to world the world trade center um which was amazing spider-man number 36 J. Michael Straczynski and John Romita Jr., their uh, blacked out issue with the the blacked out cover. Yeah, that came out like a few weeks after this issue had come out. So that that got me wondering, you know, like was this technically the first real acknowledgement from on Marvel's part uh, about nine eleven? And this was November at the time, so that then got me thinking about, you know, like the quickness of the news cycle. You know, like nowadays, if some major event happens there is this sort of implicit expectation that the comics will talk about it or deal with it within weeks of it happening right 
Yeah. And I think a large part of that is the proliferation of the 24 hour news cycle. You know, like back in 2001, I don't think it was as prevalent. You can, both of you can correct me. No, I think that was, it's like I said, that was a transition period, I think, for the industry in a lot of ways because we were able to make those adjustments sooner. It used to be like an eight months to a year at least before you could kind of respond. And that's one of the reasons why topical issues were never done. Like you mm. didn't, because it, it not only, and you know, and uh, I think people used to talk about uh, how Archie comics used to stay uh, contemporary with fashions, young women's fashions. And that was because Dan DiCarlo was looking literally at, at foreign fashion magazines, seeing what was coming a year down the road and guessing about what, what was going to be fashionable uh, a year from then. Um, so, uh, but it, at this point, you know, printing, printing was faster, having plates made changed. Uh, the, we weren't working from negatives. We'd started working from digital files at that point. So, uh, but like only partially, like some people were still doing uh, scans and some people were still doing paper artwork uh, and, and other people had transitioned, like I had transitioned to a partial digital, partial paper uh, uh, way of doing things. So, so, you know, you're absolutely right. That was a, a period where it started to adjust and we were able to kind of make those changes on the fly. We even had time to discuss it. I think we spent a, a day or two talking about whether I should put that line into War Machine or not. And we talked about the best way to word it. And I think I probably rewrote it six or seven times before it went in. It was the only, I think it was the only real change that we made, mostly because even then you still had pretty tight deadlines when we wanted to keep the book weekly, no matter what happened. So, um, so no, I think you, you, I think you hit it. I think you picked up on it. It was a, it's a huge transition point. So I guess we'll move on to the, the craft of the book. Uh, so in one of the interviews prior to the release of the book, you mentioned your creative process for both Electra and uh, U.S. War Machine, which involved the software's Raydream Studio and 3D Studio Max. Could you give us a, an overview of the assembly line, I guess, uh, of the creation of a, an issue of U.S. War Machine? Wow, that's... Um... I haven't heard Raydream Studio in such a long time. Um, you did your research. This is kind of amazing. Um, you know more about the book, I think, than I do. Um, the The process initially was, yeah, it was Raydream Studio and, th and 3D Studio Max. They were programs that we were using in animation. So I had become modestly familiar with them, enough to be able to be dangerous, I think. but not not really as gifted as like the 3d animators that i worked with on a day-to-day -day basis i did a series called tripping the rift with a, a couple of guys who were far more versed in this stuff than i was and uh, i learned a lot from them um, and i was able to use a lot of what they taught me uh, in doing it um, but um, but the process was essentially uh, actually there was a there was a spline based program i don't remember the name of it i don't think it was raydream I think it was something else that I was actually building the models in. Was it Hash? And then, yeah, you know what? I think it was Hash. That's funny. I have another name I haven't heard in a really long time. I think it was Hash. Um, but it was a, it was entirely spline-based, so it was easier for me to work with because I'd used Illustrator before. So uh, it made it, it at least it, the, the sort of the, it was a little more intuitive for me to work with those. But then that had to go through a conversion process for it to work in, in the other 
programs, which meant, and there was, I didn't know how to rig particularly well. So I was taking the broken pieces. Like I would, I built the helmet and then I built the, the chest plate and then I built the gun on his shoulder. And then I built, I would get a found model for something and incorporate it somewhere. And, um, and then I was sort of stitching those things all together when I got into the other programs as they were, I think originally DXF files. Uh, I don't know if that means that's not going to mean anything to most people, but they were, um, they were just basic, the, the most basic kinds of 3D geometry files that had nothing else attached to them other than the 3D geometry. You didn't, you, you had no texture mapping or anything like that. That all had to all be added back in when you brought them into the new program. So, so that's how it started. And then I found with um, Matt's help, Matt was the animator, uh, one of the animators on Tripping the Rift, the initial pilot that we did. With his help, he helped. He set me up with, I think, a script so that I could do outline, uh, an outline process where I could actually run the stuff through outlines, and it would export all of the the figures and the the, the models and the, the the like the Hemet truck from the that was carrying Modoc in the first issue and the and the cityscape and the streets and the other cars. It would export it as a line file, but they were really really dirty line files. They uh, they showed all the tears and the rips and the geometry. And so I had to go in and clean all of that stuff up. So what I was doing was, this is the craziest process ever. Now that I think about it, I would take all of these broken, <laughs> poorly rigged models, pose them as best I could, export them as single images. Then I would take them into Photoshop and combine them into a comic book page. Then I would go into the comic book page and clean them up just very loosely. Then I would print them out onto Bristol board. And on the Bristol board, I would go in and start by hand cleaning stuff up. And then when Marvel bought it, I got in touch with a, a manga studio in Korea that nice. took those line drawings and I would send them over to them and they would go through with all of the zipatones and they would actually cut and paste all of the, the, the zipatones. And I would do to give them as a guide for the, especially for the model, the metal reflections and stuff on war machine, I would do some 3d renders of some of the, uh, some of the models in uh, from various panels in the comics. So they would have something as a guide so that I would send all of that stuff over and they would send back these finished pages uh, that they had actually transferred to a different kind of uh, thinner Bristol board that they were used to working on much smaller, smaller scale. Uh, and then I would take all that stuff, um, go over it, clean it up, letter it and send it in to, to Smitty at, um, at Marvel. And then they would take that stuff. And that would it. be one thing if you were doing a monthly comic. The fact that you were doing that <laughs> for a weekly comic is so stressful to think about. Yeah. And not only that, you were doing that at the same time you were doing Electra. So you were working on two books at the same time. I mean, yeah. mind you, Electra was obviously on a, a monthly schedule. But that must have been <laughs> just the most stressful time, I imagine. Oh, it was it was insane. It was the it was totally nuts. And at one point, I think halfway through, I actually had to go to a local animation studio, uh, Creative Capers, to have them kind of take the process over from me. And then they started creating the pages fully in CG. Um, they were because I just I couldn't I couldn't do it anymore. It was just it was killing me. Not only that, but they had, start, had me start writing X Men at that point. So I was just I was awake. 24 seven. I was not sleeping. My wife thought I was, um, killing myself. Um, and in fact, I had been up all night, uh, the night of nine 11 
and I had no idea what had happened. And I had come in and just collapsed on the bed and fallen asleep when my wife came in from taking the kids to school and forced me to wake up and said, we're at war, we're at war. And I had just been working on War Machine all night. So I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? What? No, I, I, I finished War Machine. I sent the pages <laughs> last, this morning. It's all... And she had to literally pull me out of bed and kind of like slap me around a little bit to wake me up, give me some coffee. And then she planted me in front of the TV and said, look. Um, so, um, so yeah, no, I was, I was exhausted and not connected with reality uh, doing so much of that stuff in the early stages. But a lot of it was, a, you know, it was a process. We were doing something that had never really been done before on a production level. And I kept thinking at some point we'll get it figured out and, and make it work. And, and they were actually going to continue on doing a weekly War Machine comic, mm -hmm. but they decided they wanted to let that go. Uh, it turned out that it's actually highly profitable to put out a weekly black and white comic book because the production costs are so cheap. And, and but they instead they wanted to wanted me to focus on X Men, so yeah. I wound up writing just a ton of X Men, and War Machine went away. Yeah, I mean, I, so that that got me curious. Uh, so then, when you brought it back in 2003 what was the pitch process like there they the pitch process actually was sort of uh reversed because what had happened is christian had sent in some sample pages he really 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 wanted to do another secret wars comic in in a in poser in a poser format I see. and so he sent in samples to uh casada and Gemma, sort of similar to what i had done and with this idea for doing a new version of Secret Wars. And instead they said, we're gonna team you up with this guy, Chuck Austin, and you're gonna do another, you're gonna do a War Machine series. And and he never wanted to work on it. I, he just was not interested. And so we we never quite got along. We never quite saw eye to eye, but I, I was creating what would have been a, a, what would have been a second War Machine series that, um, I really like the story idea, but it, it may have been a little misguided. Mm. Um, but um, uh, but we just couldn't get along. And finally, at, after I think the second issue, Bill Jemis was tired of getting phone calls from Christian um, asking if he could do Secret Wars instead, that he didn't really want to work on War Machine. And so Jemis said, kill the book. Just kill it. Wow. He said, I, I said, well, you, want, you don't even want to like finish it out? And Get it. He said, no, I don't, I just want to kill it. So Damn. I think, uh, it was supposed to be another 12 issue series. And I think it was three. Yeah. Cut off at three. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it still ended up get. there was still a resolution, I guess, to the end. Like it didn't, it wasn't, you know, like in some books, it's very apparent that it's not the final issue, but there is an element of closure. So I assume that there was a, there were changes to that final issue then. Oh yeah, absolutely. He wanted he wanted closure, uh, mm. so he asked me to come up with a a completely different uh, ending and just wrap it up. Um, so uh, yeah, no, no, the series the series went on. It was a it was a, a an entire threat to the city of London and um, and uh, ex terrorists get involved with the war machine outfit to try to stop it because it's such a horrific plan that even even some of them can't be on board with it and so there was a whole different direction that the series was going to go and i just i just said okay well what about this we just 
tie all this, these pieces up in one issue. And Bill said, yeah, I don't really care. Just end it. <laughs> so it was also more expensive because it was full color and it wasn't, it, it, I don't think the response was this, even the same as the original right. black and white version. And, and at that point, I mean, it's, it's super funny to think of now because this was, I think it was 2009 that my son and I just watched it again the other day, the first Iron Man movie. Um, Iron Man was a, you know, third tier character that nobody really cared that much about. Um, so yeah. it was, it was not what you would consider uh, big guns by any stretch. And War Machine was the kind of the, the, the also ran of the Iron Man universe. So, you know, we're talking like four or five times removed from what they considered a success. So I think they just kind of wanted to put a nail in it. It's so interesting to think about because, you know, like it, there was probably a lot more malleability back then. Uh, when it came to doing stuff with the Iron Man IP, whereas now it feels like you have to jump through so many hoops to to do even an Iron Man spinoff in universe. Interesting. Uh, you, you'll I'll have to take your word for that. I haven't read a comic, a, a mainstream comic book in many many years, so I don't even yeah. know what's. Going I mean, on I'm I'm them. I'm purely just going off of the the proliferation of the character, I guess. Uh, just because you know, like like you said, he used to be a, a third tier character, but now. He's one of the the A listers at the company, yeah. so you know I all feel like there's Chuck a lot Austin. more. <laughs> Sorry, what? I said all because of Chuck Austin. Yeah, yeah, I don't think so. I think it had more to do with Robert Downey Jr. than it had to do with me. Uh, that's funny. One thing I found because you mentioned it quite you mentioned it quite a bit uh, in some of your previous answers, but um, you mentioned the manga influence behind it both in the creative process but also the the, the schedule right though the weekly release uh and in previous interviews you mentioned that uh you like books from uh katsuhiro otomo rumiko takahashi and mitsuro adashi uh the mitsuro adashi one that <laughs> if we if we end up ever doing a uh boys of summer episode i think we should uh oh. bring up the the Adachi influence, but um, how? God, you know about Boys of Summer? Holy crap! I wow. have, I, Chuck, I own Boys of Summer. <laughs> do you all three of them? No, only the first volume, but I, I do have it. It's it's in my it's on my shelf. <laughs> wow, amazing. Um, um, but yeah, uh, the the manga influence I found was really interesting because that's also around the time that manga was really starting to proliferate in North America. Right. So in, in some ways, it feels like you were right, right ahead of the curve or right ahead of the wave. Um, but when it came to the creative process of the book, uh, what things or what 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 lessons did you take away from from manga that you had read when it came to making the book? Well, I, yeah, I've always been ahead of my time. Not like I'm trying in any way, but um, I've always been way ahead of the curve on pretty much everything, which is unfortunate in a lot of ways because I, I, I kind of miss the wave. <laughs> so, so I'm not one of the people who ever gets rich off of this stuff, but the, that all started. One of the things that I always forget to mention about my, after my first run through comics is Zot and mm. Zot and Scott McCloud had a, again, another transformational uh, impact on my life and my career and just the way that I saw things there were, we had, I was part of an APA that he used to put out. Uh, it was me, him, Chester Brown, a bunch of other people that would 
put together this app where we would, you know, submit our work and then have each other critique it. And uh, it was was a great learning experience for me. I didn't know much about manga at that point. And, and all of a sudden that door started opening wide once I started talking to Scott because I started meeting other people who were interested in that and anime. I was interested in Hayao Miyazaki long before the rest of the world had ever heard of him. I think he had just finished Nausicaa at the time, but he was most, the, the, the thing that people were most excited about was Castle Cagliostro, the Lupin the Third right. movie. So, I love that movie. Yeah, same it's here. my favorite Lupin. Uh, my son loves that one too. We've, we've watched it multiple times. He just really, really digs it. Um, but, you know, again, oh, yeah. uh, that goes back to my whole um, fascination with story and just char- story, character, and, you know, those being sort of the core things that you want to stay focused on when you're creating something. And, and that's what I started getting out of manga. That's what I got from Scott. And Scott showed that essentially they were doing the same thing that we were, but they were doing it more like animation storyboards. So emotional moments would be expanded upon. Uh, Dialogue would be subtler and would be much more uh, geared to the individual frame. Action sequences could go on for pages. There's a, there's a scene in, in uh, touch the, my favorite Mitsuru Adachi series that, or Adachi Mitsuru, depending on which way you you say it, um, where (laughs) there's, pages upon pages upon pages of one final climactic pitch that's going to win or lose the game where you see him winding up you see him throwing the pitch you see the ball flying you see the batter preparing to swing you see his feet in the dirt you see a bird fly by you see the sun you see uh, the the neighborhood pool a, a woman diving off of a diving board and it's just like he's what he's showing is this moment of frozen time that goes on for pages and and this baseball game has gone on i think for like five to six volumes entire volumes of 200 page manga volumes and and it was that engagement that you made with the audience that emotional uh connection that the expanded amount of time would allow you to to get with the audience that just captivated me the most and scott loved talking about that stuff he loved talking and and i would i just became a sponge so i completely absorbed it as much as possible and so the approach wasn't really so much drawing like anime or drawing like mitsuru adachi although i did attempt that quite a bit it was it was not that was not what i brought to war machine what i brought into war machine was the the hope of being able to kind of open and expand those emotional moments to give them greater impact in the storytelling so so there are moments in there that are uh in in some ways still favorites of mine like i love the scene where dark hawk is just killing everybody and the bad guy says to roadie he says can you get him to stop that and roadie goes i I don't think i can (laughs) and that scene you know made me laugh when i did it and it but it was it was just a brief little interlude in the middle that kind of gave you the emotional context for all of this other stuff that's going on around it. And, um, and then the ending scene with, with Dr. Doom having the guy trapped inside the the room with his own toxin. Uh, you know, I tried to keep that as silent as possible. Just things like that is what, what I brought from manga. It was that, and, and it's the same. Th- it's funny because those are the things that made me successful in animation because 
you wind up being a, you wind up bringing that emotional connection with the audience, that ability to draw out an emotional moment, and that works so much better in animation than it does in traditional American comics. So, so that, does does that answer your question? That's kind of what yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I I noticed the influence, especially with the way you decomposed a lot of the reactions. Like early on, there's um. There's a, there's a gag after Rhodes and I think it's the parking valet. Uh, we're talking about the, the semantics of African-American. And there's a bit where the, the valet says he was just kind of dodgy as all. I didn't trust him as far as I could throw him. And there's like a two panel reaction where you <laughs> you can really <laughs> feel the gravita of Rhodes's reaction settle in. And it reminded me a lot of the way that earlier on in our, our um, podcast, we, we talked about the work of Shotaro Ishinomori and how he would split actions across multiple panels or split reactions across multiple panels. So, you know, like it was that kind of influence that I, I, I could see in, in, in your work. Here. Yeah. And, and again, you know, like a, a good part of that is also, like you said, your work in uh, animation. Yeah, it was. And that's, I think it was that sort of double double whammy in my life that made me realize this is really the way that I should be going, whether or not fans respond to it in the comics industry or wherever. That's, that's just the thing that speaks to me. And it still does. I've, I still, I, I teach classes or I used to teach classes when I was at DreamWorks about uh, com connecting emotionally with the audience by doing things like the scene that you just talked about. So, um, so it's still it's still critical and it's still important to me and it's you know it's paid my bills for a lot of years so uh i will wherever wherever it all completely came from i'll take it one last thing just one thing i needed to to get out of the way the dark hawk helmet in this was there any influence from guyver i i believe i it's again it's a long time but i believe we were just trying to to duplicate the actual dark hawk helmet from the comic from uh -huh. the color comic and it just had that kind of geiger feel to it but um it's so long ago i don't really remember and so much of that stuff was so rushed by the time we got to dark hawk i don't right. remember what our choices and decisions were it's not like an animation where you'll spend a year developing something before anybody ever even sees it uh, with mm -hmm. comics it's like oh you got this cool idea okay let's get started here's issue one what are you going to do with issue two <laughs> you know so <laughs> um so a lot of that stuff would happen so fast uh and i and i actually did hire friends of mine to do some designs like the design of the uh the the revised anti-gravity helicarrier was done by a friend of mine who also did the designs for the spaceships and tripping the rift um and I think I think even I think we even had a CG model of that built at one point as well. So there were times where we planned stuff out. There were times where we we didn't. We just you know tried to get it out, get it finished. Salt, I uh, you can take over from here. Yeah, I want to talk titties. All right, let's go. <laughs> let's go. So um, you're great at drawing titties, Chuck. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Big ups. <laughs> Just we got to get that out we, of the way. Well, You're we got to get that out there. Fantastic. That's that's how we get to the question. Right. Were, were there plans or hopes to put in stuff that was more graphic? Like like this is Marvel Max and I'm I'm very curious as to whether you still felt like you had to play it safe-ish, like if there were still constraints despite the Max title. 
like did you did you ever want to go farther with the the sex content what was the line did they draw a line for you as to like you can do this but you can't do this you know like you can show the nipples poking through the shirt but you can't <laughs> no we saw full nip land there was yeah we did yeah. see full nip yeah but um well the max line was created to be more mature more adult so there was no actual written rules but uh, you know joe joe and i would have conversations about it that was his that was still his imprint at the time mm -hmm. and he he wanted he wanted to go edgier he wanted to bring stuff in i was i mean i, I obviously based on my history i have no real problem with that kind of thing but um and you know and i, I was known even back then for the the females that i would draw so uh it's not like i'm i'm it's not like I'm in any way a prude about this stuff, but I, you know, I'm also aware of who I'm working for. It's like when I'm working for DreamWorks, you know, you, you don't do that kind of thing <laughs> for kids cartoons. You stay away from it. And at Marvel, there was a part of me that thought, okay, this is Marvel. I'm not going to be doing that kind of stuff. And then Joe um, would get in touch with me. He said, you can go further. Um, so we, we, so we, that one scene, I thought, well, this would be a funny scene to have in anyway. And it's a great way to kind of start off the relationship between the two characters. So, um and it's also it's very manga-esque you know it's that mm. what they call i think they call it fan service now so yeah they, i don't think there was actually a title for it at the time but um but you know mitsuru adachi has guys hiding under stairwells looking up uh girls skirts as they walk by and and pretty much every series is ever created so um there's a it's a big part of kind of that culture so when joe asked i i had no problem um I don't think he asked for that scene specifically. He just said, you can go further. And I did. Um, but I, I never really had any plans for that to continue, at least not in that war machine. I think if we had continued on with it, uh, I believe there's, a, I believe two, I, I don't remember two very well, but I think it opens with Tony Stark having sex with somebody. So I believe so. It's yeah. So I think that, you know, there, there was, there was an intent to have just to be, as Joe always put it, keep the story make sure the story is the most important thing but don't feel like you have to have restrictions beyond certain points and I'll, I'll give you an example of a certain point when i did the eternal same kind of guidelines same kind of rules and at one point the artist had sent back a shot that uh, i think it's the first time that they create a woman the eve paradigm in the in that story and the artist had drawn her quite visible below the waist i guess is the best way to put it and and joe wanted that obscured i see so there were there were levels past which he didn't want to go but that had more to do with what was you know what was sellable say in a comic shop in the south uh you know there are certain things that you can get away with and there are certain things that break laws right in some states so he wanted to be very careful and cautious about that while at the same time giving people a more adult experience and so so War Machine was intended to be, I mean, originally it was created as something that could be done as a, as a traditional Marvel comic, but when he decided to put it in the max line, he wanted, he wanted it to be more adult. He wanted it to be more violent, more uh, mature. Um, he, was, he liked the idea of characters that had shades of gray as opposed to being uh, easily discernible, uh, black and white, um, positive negative whatever you, whatever the, the sort of the standard template would be in traditional marvel so so again very long-winded answer to your question salt but that's um that's sort of that that's how it all worked out it was there was never any 
specific edicts. Yeah, but there were times when we were asked to go further. There were times when we were asked to pull back. Yeah. No, I mean, that's great. I'm, I'm happy to, to hear artists talk about titties yeah. all day. That's not like <laughs> at all. So shifting gears more to the politics, there's a, a fascinating moment where um, Rhodey's almost getting his mission sabotaged, as it were, by uh, a, an agent of Langley. And there, there's a fascinating moment where... Uh, they say, hey, that's our uh, sister from the Christians in action. Like, oh, she's CIA. And that was that was really fascinating to me because, uh, you know, my experience with Marvel was I always saw S.H.I.E.L.D. as more of an analog for CIA. And I thought it was interesting how you depicted that as more of a schism. Can you talk a bit about, like, your, your philosophies on that? Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be strictly in, in the book, too. Um, but I, I'm very curious, like, what was motivating your decision for a, a CIA versus S.H.I.E.L.D. or just general interagency fighting? Um, well, from, from my point of view, at that stage, I don't think we wanted, I mean, I, I, I know that they eventually made Captain America an agent of Hydra. So I know that, that you know, they kind of went these directions anyway. But I think they wanted their their traditional operations to be more uh you know, as you described it earlier, clean. So when I went with something that was where the, the politics were a little less clean, I would sometimes use the CIA instead of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, at that point. Like, even though they stole Tony Stark's designs for the War Machine um, initiative that, that Nick Fury starts in that series, the the idea was still that they were, you know, that they were, their head was in the right place and they were trying to do the right thing. It wasn't like they were trying to be evil. Um, whereas, you know, I mean, even, even back then everybody knew about things like operation paperclip and, and, um, uh, what are some of the others? Uh, MK Ultra. the most famous one that's MK ultra. That's the one I was trying to think of. Thank you. Um, so it made it easier to, if you wanted to sort of go with the dirtier side of things to use instead of shield to use CIA. At least that's what I remember. I don't know. We, again, we're talking 20, 20 months yeah. Some years ago. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I, <laughs> that's fair. Um, I want to circle back to earlier when, when you talked about the comic shop owner telling you, hey, this, is, this book's really cathartic for people, seeing terrorists get blown up. And you said you felt a few different ways about that. Can you e expand upon like some of the, the competing feelings you may have had at the time and and then you know how how that may have grown or changed with time as well well even then i we, we talked about the fact that a lot of this was based in in families that i had gotten to know because of because of our girls when i when they were younger and you know you hear you hear all the stories you hear uh the good and the bad you know um they wanted to come to the United States to experience freedom and to get away from the tyranny or to get away from difficulty or what have you. And, and at the same time, they have experienced racism and bigotry. And, and in fact, there was almost like in, in a couple of instances, there was almost like this show of relief on their faces when you treated them like human beings, you know, even as an, and, and even as a fellow parent at the same school, I've always been a very empathic person. It's always, not always what I would consider to be a positive thing because you, you pick up on people's 
um, reactions, but you know, by the, the, the responses on, you read visual cues on people's faces too easily. You pick up on things that, you, you know, that often make you uncomfortable or make you feel bad. And so it's not a, it's not a great, what I would call a gift in any way, but, but I read that stuff pretty well. And so I, there were times when, you know, you would see people, they were tentative and they were nervous the first time that they would meet you. And then once you started talking about to them, like, you know, like a parent, like a human being, it's just like this wave would come over them where they would, you could just see the relief um, that I'm not going to be an asshole to you. I'm not going to, you know, be insulting. And then we would have those conversations where, you know, they would actually open up about stuff. And so, you know, you, even then I knew about the radicalization and, and, and um, the fact that it's not, not as black and white as we thought. And my God, we were, we went to, <laughs> we went to Iraq when Iraq was not central to what had happened. Right. So there was, even at that point, there were, you could look at it and go, this is just, this is not as clean as everybody is making it out to be. So, so that's why I had sort of ambivalent feelings about it. I didn't want anybody feeling cathartic about blowing up foreigners in, in the comic. And that's one of the reasons why we used aim in the, in the initial comic was because we didn't want it to be, um, I didn't, I didn't want it to be based on an ethnic group of mm -hmm. any kind. Um, but, but it, 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 it was still a part of the story as, you know, the central villain, that's kind of what his motivation is. But, but that was, that, that was still left as kind of a generic, um, kind of Nazi kind of thing, as opposed to a, um, as a, a, a kind of a worldview. Right. And so, um, so the, uh, so I, I had, I had a lot of mixed feelings and mixed emotions about it in, in some ways when, when it all started happening. And I just, I didn't, I didn't really know how to respond when people would come up and say things like how, yeah. how great it was or how cathartic it was, you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, there is a certain amount of making a piece of art and then it's, it's free to be interpreted by people's other lived experiences. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, and that's, that still happens now. I, it's, that's funny. Cause I'm a, obviously with the name, I'm a huge fan of, of Jane Austen and, people still argue about whether she was a liberal or a conservative <laughs> and you know, it all, it, it all changes depending on how uh, somebody else views it when they read it. Um, the filmmakers who made the different versions of Pride and Prejudice had very different viewpoints on characters in that story that changed the story completely. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's all everything is open to interpretation and you kind of have to let it live on its own i think seal said something about the music that he wrote that he didn't include the lyrics in his songs because he didn't want people to think that they were wrong for singing in their head the words that they thought they were hearing <laughs> so i always That's thought that was a great way to look at it because they, they, these things do you're right salt they, they live beyond you they get out there and and they speak to somebody on a personal level that has nothing to do with you. <laughs> there, there's one thing that that this got me thinking of because, you know, like the year after you had moved on to Captain America, which you had taken over from uh, John Raber. Yeah, I'll, right? I'll, I'll, and, I'm and, gonna want to correct that at some point, but you go go ahead. Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> you you know the that run had started off so. 
not divisively, but it, it was definitely a reaction to 9-11. Let's, let's put it that way. When you... Actually, just... Could you tell us just a bit? Because <laughs> now that you said you're going to correct me, I'm... I'm, I'm <laughs> When you were, what was it like taking over that book, knowing, you know, like, and having those feelings about 9-11 and, and sort of your, your feelings towards people and, and their catharsis, you know, like in using comics as a catharsis? Um, um, well, just and just so you know, because you can't see my face, I'm smiling as I'm uh, as we're talking about this. So it's not I'm not I'm not upset about the about the characterization of me taking over. It was um, I was buried. I was doing so many things for Joe. <clears throat> at the time and I was exhausted and he he called me up and he said um he said look you know uh, he said you're my go-to guy and I need I need some help and I need you to talk to Stuart about uh, finishing off these Captain America arcs and I said I said look man I'm just I'm, I'm I'm so overworked I don't know that I can do it and he says no he says you've got you've got sort of that Alan Moore background and and you can you can sort of do what the artist really wants which is to have more of an alan moore feel to it and and you could finish you could and i said well what, what, what's wrong why why isn't the other guy going to finish it and he said well he doesn't seem to be able to finish it um he he, he and and so i had a, a long talk with stewart about it and so the idea was that i was going to step in to help to give him some time because he had started i guess three separate arcs and didn't have a conclusion yet for any of them and so Stuart asked me to step in and help with one of them just to give him some time to kind of complete the other two, I believe. If that's, that's what I'm remembering. I mean, you, you might know better than me. And it just, it just sort of escalated. Um, the, he didn't like that somebody else was finishing his stuff. Um, and then they, they wound up needing somebody to complete all three of the arcs. And it, so it never really, it never really became that I was like taking over Captain America, it's that I was helping to helping friends at that point to to kind of get themselves out of a publishing bind. And right, I mean, I, I, you, I you were you were essentially doing what you you were doing on animation production in the 2010s, I guess. That's exactly right. I mean, I it's funny because that, that in a lot of ways that's sort of been my career has been to be the guy who comes in to fix problems. Uh, mm -hmm. That was my that was my title actually at DreamWorks. I was the fixer. And so, so it, it was, it happened even then. So, you know, Joe asked me to step in and then after I did it, I saw Stuart at, at San Diego con, I think. And he's like, you know, I think you're writing too much. You're going to, you know, people are going to turn on you. <laughs> what am I supposed to do, man? I said, I said, but you know what, what the hell, I, you know, I'm having a good year. Let me, let me just roll with that. Cause this, that doesn't last very long. I mean, they, they turn on everybody eventually. Right. And he was, he <laughs> kind of like shook his head. He didn't really, he sort of got it, but he, he felt like, well, you could make it so that you could have a longer lasting career, but I had never seen it. I'd never seen anybody who had gotten through the comics business completely unscathed. So I said, let's just get through this. So had you read the first part of uh, Reber's run prior to, to hopping on? Not prior to hopping on, no. They sent me copies of everything and I read it all when they asked me to help out. Because mm. I was just wondering if you had a reaction to the way that that portrayed... I mean, I'll be frank here. It is a very jingoistic book. Yeah. Right. Did 
<laughs> and and when when once you hopped on it, it it took more of a like you said a, a more a fixed route it became more like the captain america that people were used to hearing or used to reading yeah right? yeah i mean that's that's the captain america that i grew up with or at least the one that i remembered so um that i couldn't i couldn't really write in the direction that he was going partly for those reasons partly because i didn't feel like this was I didn't think it was working. I think that was, it felt to me like part of the reason why he was having a hard time finishing it because to, to finish it in the direction that you're going, it means making Captain America somebody that he really isn't. Right. Um, and at one point I actually even, I even wrote a, I guess an audition script for taking over Captain America after that, where um, I made him, he, it, it's funny because I saw, when I saw Winter Soldier, and there's that opening scene on uh, where he's uh, fighting. Is it Batroc on the boat? Um, yes, yes, Batroc. Um, yes. I was watching that and I was going, they wouldn't let me do this. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was essentially my pitch. He was just a badass super soldier who didn't use a gun and you know believed in the right thing as opposed to the political thing. And, mm. uh, and so, you know, I think that was, I think it felt to me like that was part of it, that, that, but whether it was or not, I, I can, I can't speak for him. I don't know what his thoughts or intentions were, but that's, that's how it felt to me. And that's why I went the direction that I did. I have uh, one final war machine related question, and this is going to be kind of a, a round table thing. So Lan, you'll get a second to okay. think about it and then we'll finish with Chuck. Uh, you, you have an interview, Chuck, when a uh, war machine first came out. The interviewer asked you, if you had your own set of Stark's armor, what would you do with it? And you answered, uh, you'd fly, and then you'd also punch the living shit out of uh, Slavodon Malesny. Yeah. <laughs> now, <clears throat> wonderful answer. Uh, yeah, no notes, absolutely no notes. But I, I thought, you know, <laughs> with this retrospective, I, I would like if we could all give our, our, uh, our answers to that now. Um, now, so for mine, I'm going to do a uh, Marvel Universe me. This is not real world me, friends at Quantico. This is purely a fictional idea. But in the Marvel Universe, and the Marvel version of me would do the same thing to the Marvel version of George Bush and, and Dick Cheney. But... Again, this we're just ta we're talking fiction here. Works of fiction, of course, right. of course. Okay. Uh, Lynn, what about you? I, I think for me, I've got a few fictional billionaires in mind um, that that could use a good whacking, I guess. Not you know in the in the with your uh, with your fictional Iron Man, right? Armor, with with my you know, I'm just giving a nice slap up. Um, some names off the top of my head, I don't know, like. Elon Musk, Palmer Luck in the, in the Marvel, Marvel universe. universe, and we know that there's a version of Elon Musk in the Marvel Universe. As oh, a, he's there. wow! That's oh, well, he was he was a cameo in uh, Iron Man Two. Ah, uh, I think they were filming on one of his like. I think he paid to be in it. Yeah, I think he paid to be in it, which is honestly more pathetic than anything. But uh, yeah, that's I guess that's my answer. Just a uh, an a la carte selection of various billionaires. And Chuck, two decades later, what would your answer be? I don't know. Elon's hard to beat. Um, <laughs> I, I uh, oh man, 
I mean, the Marvel version of Eon, obviously. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've been, I, you know, I've, I've sort of, man, I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, we're looking at all this crazy stuff that's happening right now in, in, in politics and in Georgia in particular. And, um, I don't know. There, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of people probably that could use a, a corrective slap. <laughs> yes. Um, I don't know if I can, I, sorry, Salt, I don't know if I can break it down. No, that, that's okay. <laughs> I, I, I don't really want any of us getting a, a visit from our friends in Quantico. I, I'm, I, yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah. Clear. yeah. Um, cool. Well, so Chuck, the, the way we usually round out our episodes is, uh, we do some plugs and we do a tastemaker's grab bag. So, for plugs, you can plug anything you're you're working on, anything you want people to check out, and then Tastemaker's grab bag is like anything that you're enjoying reading or watching that you think people would like. So any any plugs or or uh, Tastemaker's grab bag items, take it away. Um, well, obviously, I I got to plug Edgeworld, which is something Pat Olaf and I are working on together, and that has been. Honestly, it's the first time I've, I've been back in comics in God knows how long, and I've I've enjoyed it more than just about any other creative experience I've ever had. So, you know, it's not it's it's one of Comicsology's best-selling books, but that's not saying a lot at the moment. I mean, they're they're um, they're still limited by the the digital thing, I think, and by having their audience be largely superhero people mm. for the most part. So, is um, it? plan to get a print release because i know that some comicsology originals have gotten the first volume releases. is out in print dark horse did a, a trade paperback of the first five issues and so and and the the second volume the next five issues has just been announced for next march i think so hey, congrats thanks thanks yeah this the response has been fantastic and it it we already had interest in turning it into an animated series and some people got in touch with us about a possible live action series. So I'm, I'm really proud of it. I really enjoy it a lot. He and I, are, we loved it so much actually that we're doing another project for comiXology that I'm not allowed to talk about yet. Um, but as far as plugs go, that's at the moment, that's really all I'm doing that, of my own. Um, and, uh, and as far as other things that I would recommend, I don't really read comic books anymore so i don't that's cool i don't I, either yeah. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm 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 reading less and less by the by the week uh yeah it's unfortunate i mean it's you know it's just one of those joys that we've all had for so long right it happens i mean i feel like it's a thing that comes and goes in waves you know like sometimes you'll you'll spend large periods of time not reading and then one day that destined book will come back and or come into your life that gets you back into reading so yeah like edge world yeah <laughs> <laughs> well i hope you guys enjoy it but yeah he's reading it's I mean, fun oh you have oh thanks yeah. um but yeah the same with um uh same with me i mean i i'm i love brian bond he and i kind of had a a couple of brief bonding moments at at uh, various different conventions I, I just like him personally but he also he enjoyed my writing so i always try to stay up on his and i so i've i've uh, I always kind of dip back my toe back in to see if he's doing anything. Um, so I got, uh, I got into, um, man, what the hell's the name of that science fiction series that he just finished off? Saga. I got into Saga for a while. Um, really, really enjoyed that. So there's, there, I guess there are things that I, 
I will give a hat tip to, but, um, but you're, it's, like you said, it's just, I don't even think about it until somebody says, Hey, you, you haven't read a comic in a long time, but check this one out. Um, but that's more and more that's, I'll pick it up and I'll read it and I'll go, eh. So <laughs> uh, it's pretty, it's pretty rare that I actually find something that I'm, I get passionate about and I'll always get passionate about Brian Bond stuff. Cool. I, uh, I have one wreck. I started watching sons of anarchy. It's a top tier dumb guy TV I love Ron Perlman, and you get to watch him chew scenery in every episode. So it's ten out of ten show. Oh, that's awesome! I've actually i I've heard it's really good from a lot of people. Uh, actually, you used to go to an annual party where Kim uh, Kim what's his name I can't remember his last name, but he used to be there all the time with his wife. Um, I think he got killed. Oh shit! Did I just spoil it? Sorry. Um, no, no, that's cool because the problem is I keep trying to look up like character names to figure out who the actor is, and then the first result is always like, "Oh, this is how they died." It's, oh, oh yeah, God. it's it's, yeah. it's all been spoiled for me anyway. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just there um, to watch Ron Perlman's massive face just talk and be angry. It's perfect. It's a great show. He's he's uh, awesome. I do love him. I, he I rules. Yeah. Uh, Land, what do you got? For me, um, like I mentioned, uh, I don't know, because with the way we're recording these episodes, I forget how many episodes it's been since I mentioned my documentary kick. And in that vein, uh, so TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival, it's not just the festival. They do year-round programming. And uh, a recent series that they've been doing is uh, they've been showing uh, the filmography of the Safdie brothers, uh recently so the the guys that made uncut gems and um good time so the the one that i'm recommending this time is actually not a fictional work from them it's a documentary that they did in 2013 called lenny cook have either of you gentlemen heard of lenny cook the person no no so lenny cook was a high school basketball player who was Honestly, as good, if not better, than LeBron James, Carmelo Anthony, and Amari Stoudemire. He was their contemporaries. You know, like, you would see him hit the, the, the court with, with LeBron James, and he was supposed to be this huge prospective star that would have made it big in the NBA, and then he just didn't. So this documentary sort of documents um, his experiences in high school and sort of what led him to missing out on that. NBA draft and I think it was 2002 and it's a really really fascinating documentary because you can tell that the the Safdie brothers they have that that vested interest in the sport of basketball but also the people that are playing it and you know it's easy to draw a line between that and a lot of the basketball stuff and uncut gems um so yeah that's my recommendation Lenny Cook a 2013 documentary that's actually very cool. Um, something that, that fascinates me because I, I, I don't know if you guys know baseball at all, but um, uh, Todd, uh, what was his name? Todd Van Poppel um, was a pitcher for the, he was just an up and coming phenom in uh, for the Oakland A's and they wanted to make sure they groomed him properly and they brought him in. Um, but he was, he was one of those kids that just outdistanced everybody by miles. And then he got into the majors and he just couldn't handle the pressure. Yeah. Just totally freaked. Um, so, uh, and I know Todd Marinovich. So that, that's a, that's a, that's something that actually fascinates me that I, I, you know, what is it that, that there's like that extra thing beyond talent that gives you the opportunity to, to make it or not. And sometimes it has nothing to do with personality. Sometimes it's just 
luck. Yeah. It's um, just the opportunities yeah. sometimes, you know, like what presents itself to you and how that person reacts to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I, I, we haven't talked about what you guys do outside of this, I, although I would love to hear. Um, but one of my big things is that I'm always encouraging people to follow their passions and to do what they, they really, really love because I think that's where you find the most success. Even if you don't succeed financially, at least you just love what you do every day. Right. So, um, preach you know. brother. <laughs> so that, that's it. Thanks for the, yeah. Chuck, I, uh, I'm a circus artist by trade. Are you serious? Really? That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm an. Thank you, thank you. I'm. I'm an acrobat. Wow, that is so cool. I don't think I've Thanks, ever dude. met anybody who's done that. But that's uh, honestly, honest to God, that's impressive. I mean, I, I've, you know, gone to see the, the Cirque du Soleil people at uh, in Las Vegas, and just it's just mesmerizing to me that people have that kind of physical acuity. So that's just impressive. You know, getting older, it's uh, mesmerizing to me, too. <laughs> <laughs> like, all right, we're going to keep doing this. The uh, the old knees aren't aren't uh, coming along for the ride, but we're, we'll, we'll get them back in. That's, that's how a lot of it can feel sometimes. Wow. Wow. You should use um, that a war, mac t yeah. war machine technology to amplify your knees. Yeah. I mean, I, I have some friends in uh, Cirque du Soleil, and, you know, a lot of us, it's always, like, the same thing. It's always this, this struggle of, you know, how are you creating art that feels good for your body and is exciting and something that, that people want to see, but it's also not overdoing it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, it's, it's a part in the, the terrible fucking pun here, but it's a tight wire act. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I believe it. Wow. That's amazing. Thanks. Yeah. No, it's, I'm impressed. Well, Chuck, this has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining yeah, us. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, you know, thanks for, thanks for knowing the material. That's just mind blowing. Honestly, the stuff that you guys have, that you guys brought up here. So it was really enjoyable. Appreciate it. Yeah. We'd love to have you on for other things too. I mean, again, as long as the opportunity presents itself, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, check in with me i'm i'm uh i'm not going anywhere that i know of so <laughs> <laughs> and that has been part three of infinite justice again thank you for listening this far if you have uh and hopefully you'll stick around for the next two parts or the final two parts that we have prepared for you as always we have a patreon which you can find linked in the description of this episode $5 is all you need per month to get you two bonus episodes a month plus show notes and voting power. That's a lot of power. You know, democracy. Salt, are you a fan of democracy? Love it. Democratic power for only $5. Forget the two bonus episodes a month, which honestly some of our best episodes are bonus episodes. But, you know, if you want to support us, you know, Patreon is an option. Otherwise, if you can't support us that way, you can still support us with a good review on your podcast app of choice. You know, you can be... It's a little bit less power, but it's still pretty sweet. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good power, you know. You still have the power to help us out a lot, you know. Only good reviews, though. Only good reviews, though. So please, if you enjoy what we do, please just go on your podcast app of choice and let us know how much you like us. It's not just for self-validation purposes.
Yeah, it's it's like when you pass that note around in the classroom. Do you like me? Yes or yes. Like those are your no. options. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's no no option. No, just there. the just the correct options. Exactly. Otherwise, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for the show, you can email us at midnightgrapplernimals at gmail.com. It's just the show title uh, at gmail.com. Otherwise, we have a Discord server, which you can also find linked in the description of this episode. If you like talking to, to like-minded people, uh, there's no guarantee that you're going to get that from our Discord. <laughs> but if you want to talk to us, there's an option right there. Otherwise, if you want to follow us to hear more of our thoughts, I am, uh, of the two of us, I'm the only one that's still on Twitter. So you can follow me at Lan tweets l-a-n-t-w-e-e-t-s a username that is not accurate anymore as you can find both of us on blue sky salt is salt m bank at blue sky.social and i'm lan skeets s-k-e-e-t-s at blue sky.social and as always keep on grappling